You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Isaiah 52.13 See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their inequities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Yes, well, good evening. Great to see you all here <clears throat> for my last, uh, my last talk in the Isaiah series. Next week is Joel, so that'll be exciting to have him uh, speak uh, to us. He's one of the apprentices. Um, and it's also wonderful for me tonight to have my family here. So my family's up there. Yeah, so give them a big warm welcome. <laughs> They're really thrilled to be welcomed so warmly to TNT. <laughs> I think that I've been, well, I don't think, I've been working here for 17 years. And I think this is the first time they've come along to a talk. No? <laughs> a couple of times, okay. Um, they come very infrequently. So please say good day to them. I'd love to say hello to you guys and get to know you a bit. 
Um, yeah, and they can't get enough of it. I mean, I, I preach to the kids 20 minutes each night before they go to bed, so <laughs> they're hungry for the word. Amen. Okay, so uh, this evening as we're going through our, our series in Isaiah, how, how can we get to Zion? How do we get to Zion? The specific question tonight is, um, who is the servant in Isaiah 52 through to 53? The last of the servant songs, so-called in Isaiah, in 2nd Isaiah, which starts uh, from Isaiah 40. Um, who is this mystery person? Now, uh, I know that you all know the answer to that, <laughs> uh, and we will get there to be sure. But I want to ask that question, who is the servant? Because in its original context, in, in Isaiah, and to the original audience, it would not have been anywhere near as evident to them as it is to us today. And, you know, even for, for some people today, especially, for instance, Jewish people who reject Jesus as Messiah, they read this differently. So it's important for us to, to wrestle with this and to look at this afresh. And my aim in doing this is to say, absolutely, Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. There could be no other. And it is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Um, that we have this in Isaiah and that Jesus has come along historically. Absolutely amazing. And I think it calls for a response. If you haven't responded already, tonight I hope you'll see you must respond because it talks about this remarkable figure uh, who will help reconcile us to God and help bring us to Zion. And this question, you know, who is this person, who is this servant, is posed for us in Acts, in the book of Acts, let me flip there. In Acts chapter 8, we have this story of an Ethiopian eunuch, and a picture will come up, a photo of that guy will come up in a minute, so it's a photo of him. Um, and he's, he's uh, from a, uh, a queen who uh, lives in Ethiopia, um, and he serves in her courts, and he's come to Jerusalem for some reason or another to, to worship, so you might call him a a God-fearing Gentile has come into Jerusalem to worship at the temple and he's going back home in his chariot. And there, I'm going to pick up the story, Philip the Evangelist, a Christian in the first century, is told by the Spirit to go to him. It says there in Acts chapter 8, verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, the Christian, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. The Ethiopian eunuch answered, How can I? he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Please tell me, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? There are a couple of things there that become clear in that question, first of all, it is not self-evident that it's talking about Jesus there. He asks, is it the prophet? Is it Isaiah? Is that who it is? Or is it somebody else? 
The other thing that becomes clear is he really wants to know. And why does the Ethiopian eunuch want to know about this obscure figure late in the book of, of Isaiah? And that's because when you go back to Isaiah and a chapter nearby that he presumably would have been reading, he can see that somehow this servant figure is critical to the hope of God's people Israel and is critical to the hope for the whole world. Listen to what it says in Isaiah, just a few chapters earlier, Isaiah 51 verses 9 to 11. I presume he would have read this and he would have joined the dots. It says there, Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Awake, as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you, God, who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster, monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Here he's talking about the Exodus event. You know, when they, they parted the sea and the Israelites went through as they escaped from Egypt? That's what it's talking about. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. What a glorious vision. And what does the picture there in Isaiah? Basically saying, God, do it again. Just as you carried us out from Egypt and took us to the promised land, and you blessed us, and you were our God, and you gave us the law at Sinai. God, do it again. Where are God's people right now? Well, they're in captivity in Babylon. And it's the last of the last of the last. The last bunch of people, you know, the, the northern kingdom was already taken off to Assyria, never to come back. And finally, Judah and Jerusalem fell as well, and they've been taken to captivity in Babylon. And here it's picturing... God doing it again, another Exodus event. And don't you love that sentence there? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see, this is the hope for God's people in all humanity. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be a part of a creation that is in sync with God and where we're in sync with one another and in sync with creation itself and it's an utter joy and blessing? Don't you want to live forever? And I think, no, not really, because life tires me out. Does living eternally not seem great to you? It doesn't seem great to me. It's funny, isn't it? There's this great hope here in Isaiah of this glorious, never-ending kingdom and to me, I don't quite get it. But what I do get right is where it says here, gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I don't want to live forever because I get tired. I don't want to live forever because there's lots of sorrow in my life and I live a relatively blessed, great life. I enjoy where I live. I love my work. I love my family. I'm just saying that because they're here. But no, I do. I love my family. I love my life and I'm still tired of life. I'm quite happy at the prospect that I'll die in however many years. 
And I, as I get older, increasingly, I'm a sigh. I sigh all the time. When I bend over to get a bowl out of the bottom, I sigh. <laughs> when, I put, when I go to get the bike off the rack to go for a ride, I sigh about the fact I've got to do some exercise and just getting the bike off the rack is hard work. I sigh. I'm a great sire. But here it says, just imagine that. It'll be different then in Zion. You will be overtaken with gladness and joy. Just think about that. You'll be overtaken by gladness and joy. Your heart will be so full. You'll be so surrounded. It'll almost be like stimulation overload. You'll be so excited all the time. So in love with the new creation, that the thought that it wouldn't be or would be good to die will seem like an evil, ugly interruption to reality. That's what it pictures here. You'll be flooded with joy. And here the Ethiopian eunuch is looking at this. And I guess, you know, he's a eunuch. <laughs> and he says, quit, I think this sounds pretty awesome. And he sees that it's associated with the coming of the suffering servant. So please tell me, if you know, who is this person? Because I need to know this person because he unlocks being a part of Zion and being part of this new salvation plan. And I just want to say, before we get into the passage proper, that yes, in the original immediate context, it is not a context, it's not absolutely obvious that it's the person we call Jesus. It's not. Listen to what it says, and I'm assuming you're a little bit familiar with the passage, and maybe you've read it, or at least you've read it tonight, right? It's already been read out to us, but you might have read it before as well. And we know, right, that in the suffering servant's passage there, the servant's song, that we are presented with this pure person without deceit, and we are presented with a person who suffers for our sin, right, to, to cleanse us. We know they're the two critical elements of this suffering servant. Well, listen to what it says here in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Listen, just carefully, listen to this. And it's talking to the people in exile, in Babylon, and God is saying through Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Can you hear what it's saying there? It's saying your time in Babylon is over because you've suffered and you've paid for your sin. It's time to come back. So can you see how some Jewish scholars would look at the suffering servant and saying, yeah, well, it's, it's the faithful remnant being purged in Babylon. That's who the suffering servant is. And it's poetic language. So even though it's singular, that could, that could apply to a whole bunch of people. But it says that he was without deceit. He was sinless. It describes him in that way. Well, listen to what it says in Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, a post-exilic prophet Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. Here it's talking about the faithful remnant, right? That's a big theme through Isaiah. There'll be this purged Israel and the faithful remnant of God's people will be left who will be holy and they'll bring salvation to the world. And here it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, 
But I will leave within you the meek and humble, the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down. And no one will make them afraid. Wow. So can you understand that some people who are Jewish, who do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, would go, I think I know who the suffering servant is. It's the faithful remnant who have been purged and are recreated now to do God's good work in the world. So this is a really important question for us to ask, right? Who is the suffering servant? Because the hope of Zion is connected to him and it's not abundantly clear in its immediate context who this is. Is it Isaiah? Is it the suffering? Uh, is Is it the remnant? Is it Israel as a whole? Who is it? Well, let's look at the passage now specifically and we'll come back to that and we'll start to answer it as we go through. But um, uh, So, Isaiah 52, verses uh, 13 to 15. Who is the suffering servant? Well, he is the triumphant one. So this is my first point. It will come up on the screen. And you'll notice that funny little pattern up there. Um, and that's because the, this poem, this piece of literature, is arranged in what they call a chiastic form. So I'm not, I'm not actually nerdy or intellectual. That's just something that was rammed down our throat at Bible college. So, so there's a lot, a lot of chiasms in scripture. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty often used technique. But what it means is that the, you know, the first section of the poem parallels the last section. The second section of the poem parallels the second last section. And the middle section stands alone is the center point of this piece of writing this poem. So that's how the servant song here is structured. So the first point, right, that I'm going to make here belongs to both those orange sections of the the poem, the beginning and the end. Does that make sense? So here we go. Who is this suffering servant? He's the triumphant one. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 52 verses 13 and 15. This is the start of the song. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shout their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Here we have a picture of someone who is so messed up, so disfigured, so beaten and bashed and defeated that he will be appalling to the masses. He'll be notorious for how appalling he looks. The story of him will spread near and far because he is such a sight. But it's saying here that as many as are appalled by him will also see his greatness, will exalt him, will praise him, will be astonished at his brilliance. And it's a picture here of glory being snatched from the jaws of defeat. That's the picture. Can you imagine a a UFC fight 
I'm not really into UFC. <laughs> um, but I've seen Conor McGregor, he's a UFC, right? And I, was, and I saw that, I've seen that video where he snaps his leg, it is so sickening. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but his last big fight, uh, he you know, was doing his UFC thing. Sorry, I don't know any of the terms. <laughs> I'm really not into UFC. Um, but I watched it and he just, his legs snaps and you can see it sort of go at right angles and it just is so gross. But forget him for a minute, move on. So just imagine someone being beaten to a pulp. UFC is really brutal, right? There's blood everywhere. Just imagine someone's face getting smashed in, the nose is broken. You can't even see their face because it's covered in blood. They fall down onto the, onto the mat and they're down for the count. They start counting and he's just about to be declared the loser. And then he jumps up and does a flying horizontal perpendicular iron snap kick. Right, that's a thing. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. It's a known move. Anyway, yeah, and, and he does that. And in that moment, in that kick, knocks out his opponent. And everyone there is horrified by this barely breathing, gasping, bloodied wreck on the mat. And then within 10 seconds, he's managed to pull himself up and kick his opponent to the ground. And everyone is absolutely astonished. And that's the picture we have here. They are appalled at how disfigured he is. Just look what it says. And his form marred beyond human likeness. I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Passion of Christ, but it, the, 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 the Gospels are famously scant on detail when it comes to him being flogged and beaten. But we know that he was flogged and beaten to a pulp. And that, that movie gives you something of an indication of what he would have... His, his skin was ripped and torn to ribbons. Blood was oozing out of everywhere. He really was unrecognisable. And it would have been what he was like. Beaten and flogged before he gets to the cross. But... They will shut their mouths because of him, his glory that is, for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. They haven't understood his glory, but now after his beating, his flogging, his disfigurement, now for some reason they see his glory. They're astounded, whoever this servant is. And that's because it's the Lord's will. That Lord, the Lord's salvation plan is being worked in this disfigured, beaten servant. Look there in verse 10 through to verse 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. Notice here, just a side point is that the suffering servant is very passive in this passage, but here it says that he poured out his life unto death. He was a willing participant in God's plan here to be given over death for the sake of other people's sin. And could you also see here that 
even though it says he was given over unto death, that he also has life on the other side of it? It begins to present a challenge to the person who wants to insist this is just talking about the faithful remnant coming back from Babylon. This is extremely hyperbolic in its description, if that's what it's talking about, right? This is extravagant language. Someone who's died for people's sins but sees the light of life and he is satisfied on the other side. After his suffering, the, Lord will, uh, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God will give him a portion among the great. So the suffering servant is the triumphant sufferer. He is vindicated. Not just before God, but before the whole world. They see something special in this suffering servant. Secondly, the suffering servant is oppressed. And I think that this is really the nail in the coffin for anyone who wants to read this as the faithful remnant of Israel. Because here, what is notable about this next section, chapter 53, verses 1 through to 3, and then verses 7 through to 9, is that Israel themselves are complicit in the oppression. That's what really jumps out. Look at what it says there. Who has believed our message? That is the message of Israel. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This strong servant-like figure. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a, a root out of dry ground. That is the servant figure before God. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us. Now Isaiah is talking about himself and Israel, right? He had no beauty or majesty to attract, uh, to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That is God's people, Israel. We held him in low esteem. We didn't recognise that he was the saviour of God's people who would make the faithful remnant the faithful remnant. We didn't see it. And so we were complicit in his cruel oppression at the hands of evil people. Verse 7 to verse 9, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Can you hear the sorrow of Isaiah as he retells this vision? I can see this powerful suffering servant who will save and we didn't stand by him. He didn't stand up for himself. How were we to know? And so who of his generation protested a conspicuous silence and think of the beauty of this horror and this will start to frame one of our so what's 
Think of the beauty of this horror. When Jesus came, when the suffering servant came into a dark world, why didn't he try to vindicate himself? Why didn't he try to make it clear to everyone that he was right and they were wrong? Because that is not how you can love an evil world. That's not how you're light in a dark world. It doesn't work. A dark world is irrational. An evil world doesn't respond to the sense of holiness and righteousness. A broken world that's rejected God cannot receive the truth of God. And so he came into this world knowing he'd be misunderstood, knowing he would be hated as he sought to love the world. And to save the world. And he poured himself out and he was treated like a criminal. He was given the grave of a common criminal. And his own people didn't stand by him. And he was coming first and foremost for them. This can't be the remnant returning from Babylon. They're the ones who helped put him on the cross. They were complicit in it all. And then it goes on to the, to the centre, the final point. This is the heart of the, the servant passage. He's the suffering one. And here Isaiah is just so full of profound, deep sadness. Surely he took on so much pain, right? Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain, Surely he bore so much suffering. No, Isaiah says, and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We thought only someone cursed by God goes to the cross. He must have done something wrong. He must have sinned. There must be something in his background that we don't know about. That's why he's hanging on the cross. We considered him being punished. But then Isaiah goes, but now we see he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Colin Buchanan has utterly ruined one of the most profound, solemn, (laughs) sad moments of self-reflection in all of Scripture. The the Ethiopian eunuch says, who is he? Is he Isaiah? And Isaiah's going, it's not me, can't you see? I'm heartbroken with my part in this. There was suffering, there was pain, there was punishment, but I don't describe it as Jesus. I describe it as mine on him. And I'm appalled at myself. I'm appalled at us. He's simultaneously getting the beauty of the suffering servant. He's really getting it, Isaiah. But he's also understanding the depth of his depravity, the depth of humanity that God's own people, the faithful remnant, 
have to have this done for them. So who is, who is this suffering servant? Who is he? Well, if you read it properly in context, you run out of options. It's definitely not Isaiah. It's definitely not the faithful remnant. They've just confessed their complicity. It's someone yet to come who is the key to unlocking blessing to them, blessing to humanity, the blessing of Zion, by getting rid of sin, by taking our sin, our grossness, our defiance against God, our self-absorption, our self-centeredness. He takes it upon himself so that we don't face the wrath of God because we haven't worshipped him and loved him as we ought. That's who he is. So what? Well, the first thing is, uh, my friends, if you're not a Christian tonight, I really want to urge you just to turn and repent. That's, that's Bible speak. That's Christian speak for turn away from the way that you think is going to make your life work and turn to God in the suffering servant. You've got a massive problem, which is that you're a sinner. That is that... You're full of good, you're full of bad, and your chief problem is you've rejected the God who's made you. And worship should be as critical, worshipping God, the God who made you, should be as critical to you and as basic to you as breathing air is. That's how we're made. To live in this deeply connected, intimate relationship with God. And if that's not you, you need to say sorry to God. And here is the person who can save you from your situation. Please turn and repent. It's a remarkable prophecy, right? This happened something like 700 years before Jesus came along. And he uniquely and incredibly fulfills the description here. It's stunning. And I would say irrefutable. I really don't know how you make sense of this other than Jesus is the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle and he comes along and he fits in there. Turn to Jesus, that's the first thing. Second thing is just for us Christians, is that Jesus gives us a pattern to live by. Christ's posture to the world that we see here in the suffering servant is to be our posture towards the world. And that's why it's partly forgivable, but there's this sort of ambiguity, right, around who, who, who is the servant figure in Isaiah? Because God wants us to not just be saved as his people, but to be his people. He wants to save us to be like Jesus, to be like the servant. He wants Israel to be that servant. They can't do it by themselves. So the suffering servant has to make it happen, right? But he does want us to be like the servant. It's a blueprint for how we're to live in the world. And so listen to what it says uh, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. So, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself 
to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Here's the Isaiah bit that's really clear. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's quoted twice in the New Testament. By his wounds you've been healed. First in Matthew 8, and in that context, it's showing Jesus walking around healing people from sickness. And it's saying this, is to, this happened so that to, to fulfill that scripture, by his wounds you were healed. So what it means there is that you know, Jesus came and by his suffering restored the cosmic order like it was a cosmic salvation. It's a window into the new creation when he heals people because by his stripes you've been healed. Here it's saying... Because you've been redeemed by his suffering, be willing to suffer like him. You've been called now to be righteous. You've been saved to be in relationship with God. And that means being righteousness in a dark world. And that means, just like Jesus, be prepared to be misunderstood. And Christians, something that grieves me so much about Western Christianity and modern Christianity and Christians here in Australia is that we only speak out when we think it's going to be understood. We try so hard to be reasonable. And it only goes so far. If you really want to witness energetically to the gospel of Jesus, the darkness will not receive the light. You'll be called names. You'll be rejected. You'll be treated unfairly because that's what happened to Jesus. And what do you do? Fight back? Get angry? No, you patiently, lovingly, gently keep going and entrust your life to God. This is what you're called to. And increasingly, you specifically, Australian young university Christians, that will be a big part of your life, I'm sure. Be prepared to do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the suffering servant who saves us from our sin and makes us right with God. And we thank you for your scripture which so powerfully testifies to what we need to get to Zion. Help us, God, to trust in you always and to grow in our trust for you. If there are people here tonight who don't know you, God, please work in them to bring them to yourself through this suffering servant. Thank you for Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.